Hollywood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. We would invite you right now to take out your Bibles and turn in them in the Old Testament to the book of Genesis and chapter number 37 in the book of Genesis. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one under a chair in front of you, and you could grab that Bible and turn to page 29, and you would find yourself at Genesis chapter 37. Today, we're going to be tying a ribbon on the story of Joseph. We have been doing a series of messages entitled, Hope Through Hardship, Lessons from the Life of Joseph, and it has been a really rich trip. Hope you found it to be that way. It's been that way for me. It's been fun. It's been real. It has been practical. And if you've been with us in this study, you will remember the central overarching principle of the entire story is that God is in control and that his providence is active at all times. And part of what I believe the Holy Spirit has been wanting us to learn through this series is that we need to rest in his providence. We need to rest in his providence even when we experience deep hardship and abuse, which is what Joseph went through. We need to rest in God's providence when we're faced with difficulties and disappointments in our life. We need to rest in God's providence when there are detours and delays in our life. We need to rest in God's providence when we experience deception and even dysfunction in our family. We need to trust God and rest in his providence when we're experiencing rejection and isolation and false accusation. All of these things Joseph went through. And one of the things we've been seeing as we've been going through the study is that his invisible hand is always at work. Everything that goes on in life has a place in God's providence. That's what we have been learning. Remember what David said to his brothers, or rather, um, Joseph said to his brothers, after the reunion and after Jacob had died, what did Joseph say to his brothers? You meant it for evil. Your intent was evil, but God meant it for good. Basically, what Joseph was saying is that everything has a place in God's providence. God's providence permeates everything that's going on. Now, R.C. Sproul says this. He says, what if we played the what-if game with the story of Joseph? He says, if we were to play this what-if game with Joseph, we would go all the way back to the technicolor coat. Remember that? And he writes this. He says, if there had been no coat, perhaps there would have not been the envy and jealousy among his brothers that would have led them to want to sell him off into slavery. If there was no jealousy, there would have been no selling to those Midianite traders. And think about this, if the Midianite traders had been heading in the opposite direction, Joseph would have never gone to Egypt. No Egypt, no being sold to Potiphar. 
Had someone else purchased Joseph, there would have been no encounter with Potiphar's wife. Isn't that true? No Potiphar's wife, no prison. No prison, no meeting with the baker and the butler or the chief cupbearer. No meeting with the butler, of course, no meeting then with Pharaoh to interpret his dream. No meeting with Pharaoh, and Joseph would have never become prime minister of Egypt. And he says, if we telescope this collection of what ifs, we conclude that if it were not for Joseph's technicolor coat, think about it, ultimately there would be no Christianity and human history would have a different ending. But you see, in all of those things that seem to be just chance happenings, some of them quite hard, God's providence was at work. God's invisible hand is in control of all things. And as we've been learning, there's a lesson for me and for you in all of that. We need to remember that in the twists and the turns of life, God is writing a bigger story. We're sometimes so focused on the circumstances and the life experiences that we are having. In the twists and turns of life, God is writing a bigger story. It's bigger than us, and it's more profound than we can imagine. And that was true in Joseph's life, and it's true in your life, and it's true in my life. And if I could just summarize what we've been learning over the weeks, it would be something like this. We have been learning that in God's providence, and this is amazing to me, that he can utilize hardship and he can utilize the dark turns of life. He can even utilize our own failures to develop our faith. That he will learn, to, he will use hardship and the dark turns of life and our own failures to deepen our maturity, to transform our hearts. You know, I was just thinking about this this week. If we think of this world as a place that is intended just for our happiness, we'll find it frustrating and obviously quite unsatisfactory. But if we think of this world as a place where in God's providence, Things happen to us, even the hardship that we experience that is intended for our growth and our development in his glory, then this life is far more understandable. So what we've been learning is that God wants us to, as we have hardship in our life, to trust him. Remember, the righteous shall live by faith. We saw that in Habakkuk 2.4 in Hebrews 10. 38. And I don't, I don't know what you've been processing through this whole series we've been going through, but to me, the startling truth is this, that God in his power and grace is able to recycle adversity in my life and turn it into maturity. Isn't that amazing to think about? The startling truth is that God in his power and grace is able to recycle our own failures into righteousness. So as we conclude our study, and I hope you've enjoyed this study, we want to celebrate today God's amazing grace. That is actually the title for our message today as we conclude this series, God's amazing grace. And I will remind you, when we talk about God's grace, 
His grace is defined as his generous, undeserved goodness. And I'm so glad that he provides grace in my life, his generous, undeserved goodness. And what we're going to see as we celebrate God's amazing grace today is we're going to see God's amazing grace in three ways. Number one, we're going to see it in Judah, Joseph's brother. And secondly, we're going to see God's amazing grace in the 12 tribes of Israel. And then thirdly, we're going to see God's amazing grace in Joseph and Jesus. So this will be worth our time. This is always a rich time when we talk about God's amazing grace. So the first way we're going to see God's amazing grace and celebrate it today is to look at Judah, Joseph's brother. Now, last week when we were together and we talked about how Joseph was in this reunion with his brothers, I stated that Joseph had not seen his brothers for 13 years. The more I was just thinking about that, I thought, wait a minute, it was longer than that. Because you remember from when he was sold into slavery till he became the prime minister under Pharaoh, that was 13 years. But there was actually added on to that seven years of prosperity, remember, all the prosperity in Egypt, and then maybe at least another year for the famine to come, which is ultimately what led his brothers to Egypt to seek grain. So it was 20 plus years since he had seen his brothers. But here's what's important about that. When he saw his brothers, in particular, one brother had changed. He was not the same brother that he had known before, and that brother was Judah. Look at Genesis chapter number 37 and verses 26 to 28. I want to just remind you of what happened. Remember, the brothers were so jealous of Joseph, they wanted to kill him. But one of the brothers stepped up as a little bit of a leader, and he says in verse 26, this is Judah saying to his brothers, what profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? I mean, we get nothing out of that deal. Ultimately, we get rid of him, but you know what? We could make some money out of this deal. And so Judah says to the brothers, verse 27, come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And so they end up, verse 28, as the Midianite traders were coming by, the Ishmaelites They took Joseph out of the pit and they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Yeah, we got 20 shekels of silver for him. Much better deal. We see Judah in chapter number 37, and he is the ringleader among the brothers when it comes to selling Joseph into slavery. Now, think about 20, let's fast forward 20 plus years later. And how do we see Judah then? We read through these verses, but I just want to remind you of them. Chapter 43, go to chapter 43. Chapter number 43, verse 8. Remember, they were having to, as they were told by Joseph, they didn't know was their brother, that they had to bring Benjamin back if they wanted more grain. And so they're talking to their father, Jacob, about this. And it's interesting that Judah steps up and he says to his father, because the whole survival of the family, extended family, was built around this. He said, listen, dad, send Benjamin with me because we need to live and not die as, as not only you, but all of the little ones, all of our children and everything are riding on this. But he says this, he steps up and he says, 
Dad, I will, verse 9, be a surety for him. I will be a guarantee. You may hold me personally responsible if I don't bring Benjamin back to you. Let me bear the blame before you forever. Interesting, Judah's not quite the same guy. Look at chapter 44, verse 16. Remember what happens here is that that Joseph has them put the silver cup, remember, into Benjamin's bag, and that's discovered, and therefore, supposedly, Benjamin is going to be due to be imprisoned or possibly executed. And, And Judah then steps up among the brothers. He's the one who steps up now. We see this in verse 16, and he's talking now to Joseph, and he's saying to Joseph, representing the whole team of them, he says, what can we really say, my Lord? What can we speak? How can we justify ourselves? I mean, we really, there's nothing we can do to defend ourselves here at all. God has found out the iniquity of your servants, all of my brothers, and we are your slaves, both we and the one who's in the possession of the cup. In other words, he's not saying, well, Benjamin's kind of on his own. He's saying, hey, We're all responsible here. Every single one of us is responsible. And then he he reminds Joseph, verse 22, of what he had told him before. He had told him, hey, the lad, speaking of Benjamin, cannot leave my father Jacob, for if he should leave his father, Jacob would die. In other words, it would just tear his heart out. I told you that we couldn't lose Benjamin because it would so affect my father. And then in chapter uh, 44, verse 32, he, he basically says to Joseph, I became the guarantee to my dad that this young son, the youngest son of the family, Benjamin, that I would bring him back. So verse 33, he basically says this, so please let me remain instead of the lad to serve my Lord. I mean, if it's gonna be imprisonment, Take me, not Benjamin. If it's going to be death, take me, not Benjamin. And he he goes on to explain in verse 34, how should I ever go up to my father if Benjamin is not with me? For I fear, I see the evil that would overtake my father. This is a guy who was a ringleader trying to sell him off into slavery. Now he's the leader when it comes to protecting Benjamin. Protecting Benji. He's the leader when it comes to protecting the heart of his father. He didn't care about that when he sold Joseph off for 20 pieces of silver, how his father felt about it. But now he's saying, I can't do that to my dad. I can't watch his heart break. So, how did Judah change? How does this happen? Well, if you remember the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis, it starts in chapter 37. And then it continues in chapter 39 all the way through chapter 50. And sandwiched in between chapter 37 and 39 to 50 is, of course, Genesis chapter 38. So let's turn over to Genesis 38. Genesis 38. And what we're going to see in Genesis 38, I believe, is that God was graciously at work in Judah's life. Now, let me give you some summary 
of what happens in chapter number 38, so we don't take the time to read all the way through the chapter. What happens in chapter 38 is that Judah gets married, and he has three sons. Firstborn is Ur, E-R. Secondborn son is Onan, O-N-A-N. Thirdborn son is Shelah, S-H-E-L-A-H. Ur, Onan, Shelah. And what happens in this chapter is that Ur marries a gal by the name of Tamar. Now, after he is married to Tamar, some event happens. Look at verse 7. It says, but Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. I don't know exactly what he did, but the Lord took out Ur. Then, notice verse 8. Then Judah said to Onan, his second-born son, go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. What is he really talking about here when he talks about performing your duty as a brother-in-law? Well, what we see here in Genesis 38 is an early expression of what is called in the Bible Levirate marriage, and it appears in the Old Testament law a little bit later on. And you say, well, what is Levirate marriage? Does it have something to do with Levi? I sort of see that name in there. No, 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 it has nothing to do with, with Levi. Um, Levir, L-E-V-I-R, in Latin means brother-in-law. And so when you have Levirate marriage, it's really brother-in-law marriage. And the idea behind it was that when you would have a man who would die without children, the next youngest brother was to marry the widow. And the idea was that he would father a child who would honor his brother who died. But one of the things the vibrant marriage said was you were not to go outside of the family. This should happen inside of the family so that the widow and the brother that died would have the opportunity to have a child in the covenant community. So, what happens is that Onan then marries Tamar, but he refuses to consummate the marriage, and the Lord takes Onan's life. Now, how many sons did Judah have to start with? How many sons? Three. Number one dies, number two dies, how many does he have left? One. He's running out of sons. And so Judah says to Tamar, you know what? I think Sheila's just a little young yet. Let's give some time for him to grow up, and then he can marry you to provide the child that you are required and legally have a right to have. But as we learn in the story, he had no intention of ever. I mean, you're, you know, you're already this thing working. Some number one marries her, he's dead. Some number two marries her, he's dead. I don't want to lose the last one. He had no intention of ever letting her marry Sheila. Now, in the story, what happens in chapter 38 is that Judah's wife dies, and Tamar comes to a conclusion that Judah was never going to give Sheila to her. And she's thinking in her mind that I have a right to a child, and if it's not going to be the other brother, it's going to be the father. So look at verse 13, chapter 38. 
it was told to Tamar, behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. Now, the shearing of the sheep was a lot like harvest time in agriculture. You know, at harvest time, when all the work is done and you're bringing everything in, it was a time to party, it was a time to be rowdy. The same thing was true with sheep. When you came to the shearing time, all the work was basically done, and so it was a time to party and to get rowdy, and so she knew that. So, verse 14, she removes her widow's garments, she'd been following the law all along, and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Sheila had grown up and she had not been given to him as a wife. Then Judah comes along and he sees her, doesn't recognize her as his daughter-in-law, and he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. Verse 16, so he turned aside to her by the road and said, here now, let me come into you, which is a proposition that he gives to her. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law, and she said to him, well, what are you going to give to me that I know that you're going to come into me, that you can have permission to come into me? I need something for this. I need a payment. Verse 17, he says, well, I'll send you a young goat from the flock. I got a bunch of them, and that'll be of value to you. You'll get a young goat. And then she says, well, are you going to give a pledge, sort of a guarantee that you're going to send me a young goat? I mean, you can tell me you're going to give me a young goat, but I don't really know that you're going to give me a young goat. What can you give me in pledge of that? And he says, well, what pledge shall I give you? And she said, well, how about your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand? Now, what she's talking about when she talks about a seal and a cord is everybody had their own little seal, and you could put your seal on documents that would identify yourselves, and they would wear that seal on a cord around their neck. It was their personal seal, a personal identification. And then the staff was a carved walking stick, and particularly well-off people, and he was very well-off, uh, would have it hand-carved with special identification markers. And if you would lose it, everyone would know that was Judah's walking stick. And she says, that's what I want. I want the personal seal that you hang around your neck, and I want the carved walking stick. And it would be very much like if, if someone said, well, I'm going to pay you something. And you say, what can you guarantee me? Well, here, take my driver's license. You know, hold on to my driver's license until you get. Or hold on to my passport, and that will guarantee that I'm going to deliver on what I promise. That's what happens in this situation. Notice the end of verse 18, he gave them to her, and he went into her. They had this little event in their life, and she conceived by him. Now, she didn't know that, but she gets pregnant from this event. And then I, I want you to notice what, what occurs um, after that. She arose, she departed, she removed her veil, and she put on her widow's garments, put back her widow clothes. And what's really interesting is that later on after this event, he gets back to his place and he said, you know, I, I owe this gal a young goat. So he gets a representative um, from his whole operation and says, I want you to go there and I want you to give this goat to that temple prostitute. And, and if you'll notice what goes on, uh, verse 21, this guy gets there with a the little goat, pulling him along with a rope. 
And he says, hey, where's the temple prostitute who was by the road? And the people there say, hey, we've never had a temple prostitute here. We don't, we don't know anything about her. So he brings the goat all the way back to Judah, verse 22. He says, I, I couldn't find her. In fact, when I asked around, they said, hey, there, there's never been a temple prostitute here. Verse 23, and so Judah says, well, you know what? I think we're just better off letting her keep that stuff. Because if this were to become public, if people were to find out what happened, I would become, verse 23, a laughing stock. I would be embarrassed. I'd be humiliated in my community. Well, you can guess what happens. Verse 24, it was about three months later when you really begin to show. And Judah got a message, and the message was, your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot. She is with child by harlotry. Your daughter-in-law is pregnant. She's not married. Can you believe that she would do that? That she would get pregnant like that? And, And look at Judah's response to her. Bring her out and let her be burned. We're going to kill that lady. I can't believe the gall that she has to get pregnant. You know, what an incredible scandal for the whole family. Let's execute her. Let's get her out here. We'll get it over with quickly. Verse 25, and while she was being brought out, brought out for what? They're going to take her out. She sent to her father-in-law, Judah, saying, I am with child by the man to whom these little things belong. Please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Verse 26, and Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I inasmuch as I did not give her to my son, Shelah. Now, now we need to understand, this was a public humiliation that he went through. Remember, he was marching around, announcing everybody, we're going to take her out, we're going to take her out, we're going to take her out. And then she brings a messenger with the little things, you know, and it probably got announced to a whole group of people that, oh, this is the person who did it. Uh, Wait a second. That's me. Public humiliation. And you know what I believe? I believe here that the Lord was disciplining Judah. And I believe that that event in chapter 38 is what God used to graciously change Judah's heart. Why that chapter's there, among other reasons. You see, here's here's an example, as we see in the life of Judah, of God's amazing grace. I mean, he is despicable times two. He's the guy who says, we want to profit off selling off of our brother Joseph. And he's the ringleader of all of that. And then he's despicable times too because he does this event and he's blaming her. He says, she's deserving of death. Wait a second. Oh, I'm a partner to this. That's Judah. Do you remember Jesus who was called the lion of the tribe of Judah? That is the grace of God. And we have all made bad choices. All of us have. And maybe you're in the midst of one right now. And if you are, just remember, it's not hopeless. 
God could even use that bad choice and by his grace, graciously change your heart. We see God's amazing grace in Judah. We also see, by the way, God's amazing grace in Tamar. Because if you read through chapter 38, you'll find that she gave birth to twins, one of whose name was Perez. And if you go to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 3, where the lineage of the Messiah is laid out, it goes like this. Judah, Tamar, Perez. The child of this event is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Tamar is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Judah is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. It's God's amazing grace. Now, if we've made a bad choice, we need to confess it, we need to turn from it, but we need to allow God's grace to change our heart. And what is amazing to me is that his providence can utilize our failures for his glory. Is that not an amazing God? That's God's amazing grace grace. We see it in Judah. Secondly, we see God's amazing grace in the 12 tribes of Israel. It's kind of interesting. Sometimes when we think about, we hear about the 12 tribes of Israel, and we think, man, they must have been some of the most righteous, holy people who ever, uh, not exactly. We've already been looking at Judah. He is one of the 12 tribes of Israel. We've seen his checkered past. You talk about the 12 tribes of Israel. They include Simeon and Levi. We saw Simeon and Levi earlier in our study. Remember, those are the two who deceived the men of Shechem and slaughtered them while they were incapacitated and looted all of their homes. They're part of the 12 tribes of Israel. You got Judah, you got Simeon, you got Levi. Here's another one, Reuben. You remember Reuben from our study? Reuben was the one who had sex with his stepmom, Bilhah? You remember Reuben, who's the firstborn in the family, who ought to be the one protecting his brothers, and he failed as the oldest brother to protect his brother Joseph? These are the 12 tribes of Israel. Judah, Simeon, Levi, Reuben, we go on and on with them. And all of them had flaws, and all of them at times were self-willed and foolish. They all had weaknesses. They all had mistakes and failures in their life. Does it sound familiar at all to any of us? It's just like us. We've got flaws, and at times we've been self-willed, we've been foolish, we have weaknesses, we've made mistakes, we've had failures, and yet, and God's amazing grace, when you come to the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 21, when the new Jerusalem is being formed, and there are 12 gates in the city of the new Jerusalem, and on the 12 gates are the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. These guys. You know what that tells me? There's hope for me. And there's hope for you. And that God in his amazing grace, he uses and blesses flawed people like 
us. Is that not encouraging? It is so encouraging to me. It's so encouraging. So we need to allow his amazing love and allow his amazing grace to work in our heart. See, men and women, God sees a Judah, a Levi, and a Simeon in you. God sees a, a Reuben and a Tamar in me. God sees a Joseph in you with all our failures, with all our difficulties, with all our warts, with all our screw-ups. It's God's amazing grace. And we need to stop running from him when we have failures and difficulties and screw-ups. We need to be running to him because of his amazing grace. So we're celebrating God's amazing grace. We see it in Judah. We see it in the 12 tribes. And we also see it in Joseph and Jesus. One of the things you may not have realized is that Joseph is really a picture of Jesus. And I want to share with you a number of these. And, and just so you don't have to write them all down, I just want you to enjoy them. Uh, they are available as a PDF document on our website, wildwoodchurch.org, and also on the city, so you can, you can retrieve these. But this is amazing to see the parallels between Joseph and Jesus, Joseph being a picture of Jesus. Joseph was a highly favored son of his father, and Jesus is a highly favored son of the heavenly father. Joseph was rejected by his brothers, and Jesus was rejected by his brothers, the Jews. Joseph was sold through treachery for pieces of silver. Jesus was sold through treachery for pieces of silver. Joseph was stripped of his robe that was marked with blood, and Jesus was stripped of his robe, which was marked with blood. Joseph was falsely accused. Jesus was falsely accused. Joseph was placed in prison for a period. Jesus was placed in the tomb for a period. In Joseph's situation, there were two fellow prisoners. One died and one was delivered. In Jesus' situation, there were two fellow prisoners. One died and one was delivered. Joseph was promoted to the right hand of the kingdom of Egypt. Jesus was promoted to the right hand of the kingdom of heaven. Joseph spoke directly with Pharaoh. Jesus spoke directly with the heavenly father. Joseph was entrusted by Pharaoh for a task. Jesus was entrusted by the heavenly father for a task. Joseph fed the nations. Jesus fed the multitudes. Joseph delivered folks from death by famine. Jesus delivered folks from death by sin. I like this one. Those who sold Joseph thought they'd seen the last of him. And those who crucified Jesus thought they'd seen the last of him. The news that Joseph was alive stunned his brothers. The news that Jesus was alive stunned his disciples. Joseph refused to condemn the ones who betrayed him. Jesus refused to condemn the ones who betrayed him. Joseph provided grain for bread. Jesus is the bread of life. Joseph provided his brothers what they needed for the future. Jesus provides us all that we need for our future. 
And Joseph's situation, because they were related to Joseph, they were rewarded with the best. And because we are related to Jesus, we are rewarded with the best. In Joseph's situation, eventually, his brothers recognized him and bowed down to him. In Jesus' situation, eventually, the Jews will recognize him and bow down to him. In Joseph's scenario, the prince was their brother. In our scenario, the prince, with a capital P, is our brother. Eventually, it was true for them in Genesis that they would head home to Canaan. In the meantime, the mantra was, stay close to your brother. Eventually, we will head home to heaven, and the mantra for, for us is, stay close to your brother. See, God's amazing grace, it's greater than the greatest hardship we would ever have. It's greater than the greatest screw-up we would ever commit. Because the Bible says this, where sin abounds, how does it finish? Grace abounds more. And part of the lesson that God has for us is that God's providence is to give us confidence that even when we're in the middle of dark things, just as Joseph went through time and again, that he, our God, is still at work. That's his grace. His love is amazing. Now, I think Phil Tuttle does a great job of putting a capstone on all of this. He relates this. One traumatic week, some 2,000 years ago, a group of followers of a controversial rabbi were grieving the worst detour they could have imagined. Their greatest hopes had hit a dead end. They had planned on reigning with their leader, who from all appearances was on the verge of a successful uprising. He was a different kind of leader, and God was clearly with him. But just as everything seemed to be coming together, it all fell apart. Their leader and their hopes were brutally executed and sealed in a tomb. God, who had appeared so present in the story, suddenly seemed to be tragically absent. And he goes on to write this. He says, as we now know, the detour was actually the plan. God's sovereign purpose was written between the lines of the story, only to become clear on the far side of the resurrection. That's how his processes work. I love what he writes here. He says, the meaning isn't obvious in the middle of the plot. The path looks complicated and the promise seems impossible until restoration or fulfillment takes place. And then he concludes by saying, only near the end does the beauty of the story become greater than its pain. Men and women, that's our life with God in the midst of hardship. And the meaning isn't obvious in the middle of the plot. But near the end, the beauty of the story will become greater than the pain of the story. And thus, that is why we can say there's hope through hardship.
Let's pray together. Father, we just really want to thank you for the story of Joseph, which is also the story of Judah and the story of Tamar and the story of Perez and the story of all of us. And we just really want to praise you for your amazing grace and your amazing love. We give you praise that you're the one who breaks the power of sin and darkness in our life. We want to give you praise that your love is mighty and so much stronger than even the hardship we have to face in our life. And the most amazing thing about your amazing grace is that you chose to take my place. What I deserve to receive, you took for me. So, Father, we just really want to thank you so much. We thank you for the story of Joseph. We thank you for the word of God. We thank you for your character. We thank you for your providence. We thank you for your love, and we thank you for your amazing grace. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>